on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. To another edition of Soundtrack Alley here on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I'm Eric Woods. I'm filling in for Randy Andrews. And on the program today, we're going to be talking about the 1985 Ridley Scott directed film Legend, which featured two original scores one by Jerry Goldsmith and another written by Tangerine Dream. And we're going to be talking about both scores and analyzing specific cues against each other to see how they relate to one another, what their similarities are, and what their differences are. And my guests today include David Casina, Jason Drury, and Robert Daniels. So sit back, kick up your feet, and relax as Soundtrack Alley on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network begins now. I'm Eric Woods, and welcome to another episode of Soundtrack Alley here on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast Network. I'm filling in for Randy Andrews today. Randy is normally the host of this show, yet he didn't want anything to do with this episode, so he gave uh, his blessing that I could host and moderate this special episode of Soundtrack Alley. This program focuses on one specific film and its score. And today we're talking about the 1985 Ridley Scott-directed fantasy adventure film Legend, starring Tom Cruise, Mia Sarah, Tim Curry. The film revolves around Jack, played by Cruise, who must stop the Lord of Darkness, played by Curry, who plots to cover the world with eternal darkness. Uh, with me today are three members of the Cinematic Sound Radio Network first from Ramsgate in Kent, England. He's the producer of the brilliant three-part radio documentary, The Life and Music of James Horner. He's also the host and producer of the archive here on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, Jason Drury. Good. Hello there. It's good to good to be on the show. Great to have you, Jason. Second, we have our brilliant in-house composer with us. He is also the host of Composer Conversations here on the network from Milton, Ontario. David Casina. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Great to have. Great. I'm good. Great to have you here. Glad to be here. 
And last but certainly not least, we have a fellow soundtrack radio host who produces his own soundtrack program, Visions and Sound on FM 98.5 CKWR here in Kitchener, Ontario. The show actually eclipsed its 1,000 episode back in December of 2019. He's also the host of Obscure Scores here on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. He's also a very good friend of mine. Please welcome Robert Daniels. Hello, Eric. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here as well. So are we all ready to talk about Legend? Let's go. Indeed. All right. So first of all... (laughs) 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 Took some convincing, huh, Jason? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, twist, twist his arm. Well, Jason, you know what? Let's let's start with you. Uh, when did you first see the film and uh, what did you think of it? Well, I first heard of the film when I walked into a record shop in Ramsgate, I think in 1985, and I saw an album that says Legend, the music of Jerry Goldsmith. And it was a vinyl LP, and I thought, this is interesting. So a couple of weeks later, I actually bought it, and I listened to it, and I thought, this is fantastic. This is amazing music. Then after, then a few years later, the um, Silver Screen Extended Edition came out, and I thought this is fantastic. Really, really enjoyed it. Hadn't seen the film yet though. I only saw the film finally like four years ago. I think I got it for Christmas. My partner sent, sent gave me the got me got me the the DVD for Christmas. It was like the Blu-ray for Christmas, and I was well. It was, my first reaction to the film was it was very I oh, I enjoyed it I I saw often it was a Ridley Scott film and the way the, the, the way it was the sound quality the the sounds the the Foley sounded very Ridley Scottish in it in it in its in its approach and I think I've noticed so on on the on the Blu-rays that's the only, it's the only films that's had two disclaimers it was a disclaimer at the front of the of the, uh, the director's cut, and also a disclaimer on the on the version on the um, on the theatrical theatrical release. And um, but you know, even though the quality it was a slightly different slightly different quality of the uh, the Blu-ray transfer, the the film itself, I well, it it was well worth the wait. It was a one. It's a great film. It's been a very interesting. Week for me, kind of weekend for me. I've seen, I have listened to music from Lord of the Rings for Rob's show this week, and I've also now listened to music for these four, the, the legend. And it's, it's been it's sort of fantasy has been a, a really big fantasy weekend for me in that respect. But I followed the film, the film, I, I okay, I saw the film a couple of times, I saw it with the Ridley with the, with the Scott commentary as well. Found it absolutely fascinating, as always in all Ridley Scott films. He does a commentary for it's always fascinating for him to talk about it. And as far as, far as the film itself does, it's both 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 films. The, the production design is absolutely amazing. There's the the, the you know it, it really every time it does stand there, it's absolutely stunning sometimes you can't even believe it's, it's all, all done mostly on the 007 soundstage but and it, you know it it, it has a nice most pace in my heart and really many because of because of first of all the music and i've been i think i've heard this, this soundtrack on the score like so many times it's untrue but i've now you know i've seen the film now and you know it it has its critics but i really 
it is, you know, it's, it's got a nice place in my heart these days. You know, Legends is a film I, I think I should go back to a lot more often than I do. I think it was just, this week has been the first time for a, for a few years now since I've seen it, but it was well worth it. But particularly the director's cut. Robert, before we uh, get your thoughts on the film, can you uh, introduce us to your cat? Um, he was here. Uh, Gimli is... Oh, come on. Come here, buddy. <laughs> He's your partner in crime, right? Yeah, he is. He sits in on a lot of, a lot of the, uh, um, the COVID stuff that I've been uh, uh, doing, doing from time to time. So yeah, it's, Gimli is the cat. You may hear him from time to time. He likes <laughs> yes. to, he likes to, he likes to think that I'm talking to him. <laughs> so there's he, that. He's your co-host. Yes, <laughs> yeah, in a is. lot of cases, and he is a bit of a legend himself. <laughs> I'll just say that. Well, he's, he's a fantastic co-host. So yeah, if you, you hear him in the background, uh, that, that's who it is. So, uh, Robert, tell us, uh, when did you first see the movie, and what did you think? I completely missed it in the theater. Um, it was '85. I just I wasn't into, uh, I just basically wasn't going to, to movies at that point, um, at least in the theater. So the first time I saw it was probably, I'd say probably 1988, maybe 89, um, when it was on um, pay, uh, pay TV, uh, used to be like First Choice Super Channel here in, in, uh, in Canada. And... Um, yeah, that's where I first, that's where I first saw it, um, and it wasn't the uh, the the UK version, which is what it became known to, at least in my mind. Uh, it was the theatrical version, and it was just that was the one that that I saw. Um, I really appreciated the the design. First of all, the design of of of, uh, of darkness, and just the uh, the the score stuck with me. Uh, I had, first of all, I'd never heard of um, Tim Curry. I'd never heard of Tangerine Dream, and I only knew I only knew Tom Cruise from Top Gun. So it was like, okay, what is this that I'm looking at here? And I was just uh, again blown away by the um, the look of the film. Later to find out that it wasn't shot outdoors; that a lot of it, a majority of it, was shot. In in a in the uh, uh, 007 studio, I was just like, holy crap! And then I was wondering how they did the uh, the Una character, that that floating light. I mean, it makes sense now that I know what what it what they were doing. But at that time, it was like this stuff just kind of blew me away. Uh, again, going back to the score, um, it was the only thing that that I knew. Um, the uh, the Brian Ferry song at the end was kind of a, a sort of semi favorite. Is your love strong enough? Like the I had looked for it everywhere um, because I was just just starting to get into soundtrack collecting. So I was pulling in just about anything and everything that I could find. So I finally found 
a vinyl version of the uh, of the score on MCA, and uh, it's got great artwork on it. But uh, the uh, um, it was it was the most expensive soundtrack purchase I had made at that time. I've made many more since then, but anyway, um, the thing is, is that it's uh, uh, it's it was just a, a just a great to, great to hold in my hands, great to, to listen to, and for me, it was just one of those those scores that um, I appreciated it, but it wasn't necessarily one of my favorites because there was also other stuff that was coming out on uh, with Tangerine Dream. There was uh, Firestarter. And a couple of other uh, others that that uh, that uh, that kind of stuck with me, but um, Legend was was kind of really not on my radar until much much later on when I when I was watching the film on, on video. Um, I had recorded it off of TV and started getting into the whole idea of you know um, what was this what was this the the story behind this film and what influences it it definitely uh, comes through that you can see that you can see I mean there's obviously some Lord of the Rings um, influence Beauty and the Beast just a whole bunch of different influences on this film um, to find out in I think it was had to have been the 90s I'm not sure maybe mid 90s that there was actually a second version of this film um, I think that was kind of the rise of the laser disc at that point so you would get two versions of a, of a film sometimes on a laser disc or on a, a set of laser discs so to hear like i said that there was a second film i was like okay well what what am i missing out of the out of out of the from the first film first film's 90 minutes it's com it's compact it's quick it's bang it's done it's completely different and i watched it again this morning and watching it again this morning, I'm like, okay. There are certain parts of the film that I'm like, okay, that need that needed to stay in there. That needed to stay in there. Why did why they removed that, and mm. that sort of thing. Um, my take on it is is very simple. They were they were they were coming off of probably the success of of the soundtrack to Ghostbusters, so they probably wanted something that was huge that they a song pop song for the kids uh something like that so something they could play on the radio and my true love's eyes was just not the uh the kind of thing that i mean today it would be rihanna doing a remix of it now or something <laughs> like that but i mean back please then no please no but now um i mean having uh, the adding the, of the pop song and and poor john anderson and his basically i think he's singing at that point he seemed like he was screaming the lyrics i mean that's just my when i heard it this when i heard it again this morning in the in the in the mix of the film he's just like right at the top of the of, of his uh, must be at the top of his range because it's just um i won't say it's ear splitting but it was he must have had he, it must have been really hard on his voice to sing that mm. um so yeah that's my take on on the tangerine dream score i appreciate it for what it was i didn't realize that there was a, a jerry goldsmith score until much later i didn't get it 
until much, much later, so I didn't have a chance to hear it. And now hearing it, it is my preferred choice for the score. Again, but going back to the whole idea of that there is a bit of nostalgia when I hear the Tangerine Dream stuff. TV-wise over here in, in, in the Arctic Kingdom, I think it's been shown on the BBC a couple of times, but only the theatrical release with the Tangerine Dream score. The Jerry Goldsmith legend has not been shown on terrestrial television here yet. Even though it's been shown on, I think, on one of the one of the stations, and I think I did catch it once before I got the Blu-ray. I thought, oh, this looks really interesting. They've got Legend with Jerry Goldsmith's music on it. This would be great to have to have. That's why, that's why I really, really wanted it myself to have a proper look at it and really analyse the score, as finally with the individuals. And I wasn't disappointed, as I say. Yeah, uh, I was was. Um... Like I said, just absolutely blown away that the fact that there was a, a Jerry Goldsmith score to this, and to and and so to hear that after all the after all the time, it was it was like listening to, um, it was like it was like it was like you know rewatching the film, a new a brand new cut of the film for the first time, and it was like this is so much better. Why did did Scott decide? to do what he did with, I mean, poor Jerry Goldsmith working on Alien, which there are parallels in the film to, mm. to Alien. There's a couple of, couple of things that caught me was, um, um, uh, for and spoilers for those that are, are, are the want to watch the film later on. Um, there's uh, the ending reminds me very much of, of Alien where the aliens holding on to something and um, I'm not making a not making a monologue about light but there's still that parallel in 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 the in the visuals um, there was stuff in there that that stuck out with me um, in it's blade runner as well just the way it was shot and um, the the so many close-ups of Mia Sarah's face that reminded me a lot of of shots of Ripley from the uh, from from the seventy nine alien, so this is this is I I think maybe a young filmmaker trying to um, make a voice and then hearing or, or expressing his voice and then suddenly realizing that oh the the higher ups uh, from what I heard from what I've read it was pot smoking. Um, yes. Uh, view, uh, viewers of of a of a of a of the, of the original cut that kind of scared Scott into into rejigging the film and changing the score. I mean, it reminds me a, a little a little bit of Troy as well, where you have the um, the the old timey score as I, I I think it was referred to as, and um, Goldsmith's. Uh, the more I hear it, no, it does not fit under that it actually has a very interesting I, I i was surprised to hear the the um the electronic components in it and yet it still for some reason was was changed i hmm. uh, i can't i i don't understand that <laughs> yeah really scott gets trampled on quite a bit mm. especially on his earlier films and uh, uh sydney scheinberg was the major culprit at um 
uh, for the change of the American version. I think he was the one that even uh, was doing all the editing as well of that new version. So, like, Scott was was just kind of left out in the cold and, uh, you know, he had no say in what was going on with the, the American version. So the, the, the European version did get favorable reviews, but, you know, Scheinberg thought, hey, th- we've got we've to market this to a, a more uh, youthful audience. And that's pretty much the reason for the change in music because he thought that the music was going to save his film. David, uh, tell us what you uh, think about the movie and, and when you first uh, saw the film. Apparently I'm the only one that actually saw it in the theaters first run. <laughs> yeah, I saw it in 1985 when I was 17 years old. Um, interesting story is that that was the, the exact same year that I got interested in synthesizers. Um, so at that time I was actually more into Tangerine Dream than I was into Jerry Goldsmith, but I did know that there was a Jerry Goldsmith score because the first keyboard magazine issue I ever bought was Daryl Hall was on the cover, Suzanne Chiani was interviewed, and also part two of Jerry Goldsmith's conversation with, I think it was Jim Eiken or Bob Durstcheck, and he was talking about this project he was working on at the time, which was Legend. And he talked a bit about uh, Under Fire and working with Pat Metheny as well, it was around the same time. So he was very excited about what he was going to bring to the score. Um, but I wasn't as cognizant of his work at the time. I had been years earlier as a soundtrack collector because I started collecting soundtracks in 1977, you know, when I was a kid. Or I was begging my parents to buy soundtracks for me. I didn't have a job then. Um, but the, the Tangerine Dream score was part of the allure for me to actually see it in the theater. It was less Tom Cruise, because Tom Cruise really wasn't a very successful, like, marquee draw at the time. He was in, he was a, sort of a side player to things like The Outsiders, Taps, uh, things like that. He wasn't, he wasn't actually, it was not until Legend, well, probably Top Gun, which sort of catapulted him, as, if, I, if I remember. So... It was it was the it was the music that drew me to wanting to see the film. It was the the fact that it was Ridley Scott because I was a huge fan of Alien and Blade Runner. It was Rob Bottin, uh, my best friend at the time, was huge into practical effects makeup and worshipped the ground that Rob Bottin walked on. And we both were fans of the thing. So all those those factors were sort of a no brainer for us to want to go see it first run. Um, didn't see it in a great theater. I think it was like a Cineplex, which, you know, seated like 14 people. The screen was like probably smaller than some people's homes now, or their <laughs> theaters in their homes. Um, but I have to say, even at the time, it was it was very mixed bag. We loved, the friend of mine and I, we, we both walked out, loved the, the, the set design, the look of it. Um, but even as 17-year-olds with le- less taste in movies than I would say I have now, there was... The script was clunky. The casting was not really great, um, and I was disappointed in the score. I had by that time, I think I had 22 albums of Tangerine Dream, um, right from their early 70s work, like Rubicon, Phaedra, so early soundtracks like Sorcerer, Thief was my first soundtrack that I got of theirs, and then I just opened the floodgates. Poland, Tangram, um, and I love their work. I know that. 
contemporaries of mine say, oh, you just, you know, you don't like anything that's too new or too electronic. It's like, no, he, that's that's quite the straw man because I actually I was more into electronic music back then than I was into orchestral. That was when I discovered electronic music. But I think I found even at the time that it was kind of a hodgepodge. There was a lot of stuff that just seemed literally thrown at the canvas and they like it sounded like they were praying that it would work. So I found the music in the film experience distracting, not connected. And there'd certainly been enough films that I'd seen up to that point which had amazing scores and that did really work organically with the the characters and the atmosphere and the narrative. So I walked away from it thinking, geez, I wonder what that Jerry Goldsmith score is like. Now, uh, unlike uh, Jason and uh, Rob, I wasn't cognizant that there a score was ever released or a cut was ever released in, uh, overseas because we had no internet back then. And I, I like collecting trade magazines like Cinescape and Starlog and all that. But I don't think there was ever a mention about um, an alternate version. It wasn't until I got into university and I hung out with the film guys because I was obviously trying to become a film composer. So, And, I, and one of my director friends said there was a bootleg videotape that he had of the European cut. So one night in residence, we all watched it. And I was thinking, I was blown away by the score. I was like, Jesus, this, this thing's amazing. And at that time I was, you know, first or second year university in music studies. And I immediately heard the comparisons of Ravel and Stravinsky, a lot of the stage works, that kind of expansive sound in that, that other score. From Goldsmith and even the cut seemed a little bit more even it seemed a little more digestible yep. and things like even darkness it seemed to have a better context or and, and definitely a def, more of a portent because of the music that accompanied and it still baffles me when I see comments where you'll see on YouTube where there's like a, a, a scene which is scored by Tangerine Dream and then uh, the same scene scored by um Dre Goldsmith and people say oh yeah no the Tangerine Dream is like dark and moody and Goldsmith is too sweet it's like I don't know what you're listening to but I don't think that's even close to correct and it's funny Keyboard Magazine ran a very short blurb with Tangerine Dream after Goldsmith had gotten uh, ejected and it was a small thing but they said quote we, are, we respect Jerry Goldsmith a lot but we didn't feel this this score was not to our taste either it was a little too sweet so i i don't really if, if anything their score is a little too tame it's a little too ambivalent and it really doesn't connect at all with with anything that's going on narratively or atmospherically it just it's 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 subpar for that group and they, they did great things I mean they've they've done some great scores so it's really nothing against them and from what I understand they, they were up against the gun to kind of throw it together and re just refreshing my knowledge of a little bit of the background I read that um, they weren't even aware that John Anderson came in with sung over one of their pieces like they yeah. weren't aware of that so a pop song was made out of their unicorns cue um, and they didn't know it. I have seen the mystics play there Once or twice Well, I knew they had a reason Enchantment plays its cards all right Hand in hand with the workings of the sea 
Sort of, it was a whole screw job <laughs> on all levels um, for both sets of composers. But um, I didn't hate the film at the time. I think when I first saw it with the Tangerine Dream score, I bought the album, and the album had that really cool cover with darkness on it. Um, but I rarely played it. And um, when I saw the, when I finally had a chance to um, get the silver screen score in 1993 I picked it up at an HMV and interestingly enough I picked up Ravel's Daphne and Chloe at the same time I didn't even know that there was the similarities but um, that was my favorite score of the summer the only other score that summer that probably commanded the same amount of replays was Jurassic Park by John Williams so um, it was a great discovery you know, it, was a, it was a fantastic discovery of this amazing I mean, this this wasn't a score that was a subpar Jerry Goldsmith score. No, this was this was pure gold. The amount of work he put into it, the 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 architecture, the development of the themes, the the breadth of the themes, the sophistication and orchestration. It's yeah, it would have been a crime if that had never been released. And I actually want to ask Jason one thing because I read about this, but I so Jason, you said that there was an actual soundtrack for the Goldsmith score back in the 80s it was yes and okay. the this, this this distributing company wasn't universal it was fox 20th century mm -hmm. fox because i remember 20th century fox logo on there and it was it was his album if you, if you look on some sites you can actually see the album cover it had a picture of darkness tom curry who was like the main poster boy for the for the film mm -hmm. and uh it was like 10 tracks five each side they were out of order I didn't know the what the proper order was of the tracks until the Super Screen release, Super Screen release came out. But even even so, it was an album which I played regularly mm. on vinyl. It was absolutely joyous. And once the the full well, the fullest score came out with, from Super Screen, it really confirmed to me that this score, if it was released and it was part of the American release. I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that Jerry Goldsmith would have received an Academy Award nomination for it or some awards because it is one of his best scores ever. Yeah, it's mm. interesting that you mentioned um, Jerry Goldsmith's score being sweet, David. <laughs> and <you> know, <laughs> I can't but, figure that out. But the, the funny thing is, though, that Ridley Scott like set out to make a family friendly film with this movie because of the dark atmosphere in Alien and Blade Runner and he wanted to try something different and so it was him all along that wanted to create something quote unquote sweet it's just it's interesting that that is the label that you know Jerry Goldsmith's score gets meanwhile that's pretty much what Ridley Scott wanted but I still don't I don't, I don't think sweet is the right word. I think it's refined. To describe yeah. it. Yeah. I think it's a refined score. It's it's yes. it's lyrical in a lot of places. Uh, maybe it's just it's that's an adjective that most people don't necessarily grab or reach for, but that's 
how I would characterize it. It's not vicious like Alien or Planet of the Apes. Let's well, 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 even as dark as some of it can get, it's still fairly tonal, and it's it's not you know as as aggressive as Goldsmith could be. So. Yeah, so um, before we go more into... Unless you want to say something, Jason. He's quite aggressive on the Darkness Falls cube, I thought. And also the the lead, the, the scene for the, the fairy dance, which was the lead scene in the film. He's very, that is the most violent dance I think I've ever heard in film music history. And it, it would be great to actually have that on, in the film. You know, it's, it's it, it, it is as it is. It's one of his greatest scores. I don't, I, I don't call it sweet. It's just lyrical. It's just so, just a, you can, you can listen to it, and, and particularly some of the cues we're going to talk about in the show. You can, you can just close your eyes and just, you don't need, you don't need the visuals of the film. It just, it just, it's just pure beauty in the music. Yeah, it plays like a tone poem. In fact, I was telling Eric this, and I've, I maintain this. If Goldsmith had lived long enough and had ever a desire to adapt anything to concert works, he could have made this a ballet, and they could have mm. staged it because it doesn't have that many different sets. There's maybe four or five, and any ballet company would production company would be that would be easy for them to do. Uh, I think it would be amazing to just have dance or choreography and and have uh, the music because it, it really is the music comes across as a stage work like Stravinsky's Firebird or or Daphne and Chloe from Ravel or Bartok's Wooden Prince it's very um, very evocative music like you said Jason you don't need yeah. to see the movie to understand what's going on narratively agreed it's also, it's also to be the closest thing Goldsmith ever did a writing a musical with the, with the, the lyrics John Bert is important to the plot of the film, or particularly the uh, the director's cut of the film, and the and the and the dress well. So you can see, mm. even even in, in the theatrical version, they are not dancing to the musical Tangerine Dream. They are dancing to the music of Jerry Goldsmith. And when you see that scene, it 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 is one of the most beautiful dance sequences I think on, in any of the films Jerry Goldsmith. Well, the only one of the few dance sequences he composed for, but it is absolutely wonderful to, to, to watch visually as well as and as all you know listening to the music and i think we've also got the credit here the great orchestrations of the great alexander courage for this because he was yeah. really i think you got to, you've got to be really part of the credit of producing this wasn't great that morton score for i thought it, i thought it, it, uh, it, it was a morton orchestrated legend it's alexander courage did but did all of it it wasn't, oh really? It wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, I think it was one of the first that he did for Joey Goldsmith. I think, well, well, the first time he was a full, full-time orchestra for Goldsmith. Uh -huh. I think at, at the time he was like they were alternating between Ralph Morton and uh, and Courage. And after mm -hmm. when when Morton retired, Courage took over until his retirement in two thousand. Okay, that was one of the things that jumped out at me when I saw it uh, this morning. Was uh, oh Alexander Courage did the orchestration for this. 
And I mean, normally most most people would let that go right over their head, but for me, it's like, oh, okay. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't Morton this time around. Mm. Um, one of the things, and, and I I took you know some some I won't say copious notes, but I took some notes, and uh, the 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 Goldsmith score being called sweet, uh, I don't see it. Um, no. The the Tangerine Dream score seems very intrusive now that I've seen or heard both films back to back it's almost as if it's not meant to be there and now that I know what what has happened yeah it kind of wasn't meant to be there in the first place but um, yeah sweet would not be what I call (laughs) I mean I'd say that uh, if anything whimsical in certain spots would be be the better word for it Mm -hmm. I, I wrote that Goldsmith plays the dread so much better in this mm. with that scene with with um, with Mia Sarah and darkness or Lily and darkness uh, at the at the dinner table it's just this whoa you're like that is that is disturbing it is a disturbing scene D- David and I were talking about this yesterday and it still sends shivers down my body it just makes my skin crawl and it's it's nothing um uh, explicit. It it is it is the way Lily is dressed, though. But it's also the way that Tim Curry is looking at her, and the way that he's talking, and his movements, and the cinematography of Alex uh, Thompson. It is creepy. Yeah. And to make it even more creepy, Mia Sawa herself was only fifteen at the time. Yeah. 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 It's it's something else. <laughs> yeah. Um. The the one thing that jumped out at me as well is that. Curry's performance was coming through that makeup, uh, d- despite how much makeup they put on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the 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 voice and the performance. I mean, the one of my favorite lines in the, in the uh, in the director's cut is this: "We're all damn." You disgust me. You're nothing but an animal. <laughs> we are all animals, my lady. Most are too afraid to see it. Damn you! We are all of us damned, my queen. He just, he just, just absolutely nails the uh, uh, the, the the darkness character. And in fact, I, I remember hearing on the uh, on the director's commentary that, uh, as as uh, as Ridley Scott puts it. That uh, Curry really thought he was the bee's knees when he was completely dressed up in yes. the in in the darkness getup. Uh, but yeah, I I don't see where they got where they got sweet. I mean, sweet, yeah, maybe with my true love's eyes, but but that's you, part of no. the that's the that's that's part of it. I mean, it, it, that's that's part of the character. And uh, well, back to Tim Curry for a minute. It was five and a half hours in makeup to get that on there. And, and that was the he, best scene in the whole movie, though. Right? I mean, so, that's the one that everybody remembers, right? It, is the scene with him and Lily. And you know what? I would love to have seen more of him, but I think that saving him for when he does appear in full, I think, is absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah. You, made a you, huge impression, at, right? At the start of the theatrical version, you actually do see him like in black. You can see it definitely is there, but you don't see him in full. No, it's just his arm. Film. Just his arm. Yeah. But you do you do see him in any theatrical version? You actually see him sitting in the chair at the start of the film. He's dark, he's darker. He's not red, but he's but he's definitely you can see he's an outline. It's definitely him on the, in the chair. In the in the uh, 
directors cut you don't see him at all you just see that picture that's outside and the spanny and, and the night sky in but and you just hear his voice and his voice is to you know really sets up the movie so well but you only see him the poster board of the film only appears like towards the last third the last couple of last act and a half of the film you actually do see him in his full glory and when you do see him particularly in that scene with Ramir Sara he's he chews up the scenery so much. You just can't resist watching him on screen. He just takes over the entire film when he turns up finally. And he just, he, he, it's absolutely sensational. And I can see why, I think at the time we just got never heard of Tim Curry until somebody pointed to him about a performance in the Rocky Horror Show and how outrageous he was and said, that's the guy we need for, the, for this. And, uh, you can see it's one of the, one of the great castings of of uh, of somebody for that role, and he, he, he re nope, he really just took it over and made made it made it his own, and it's still one of his most memorable roles to this day. We've we've got to talk about Meg Mugglebones' appearances and and the comparison between the two cuts. Oh, geez, he's the, barely, the, he's the barely he, 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 in the theatrical version. He, he says, "I'm here," and then he gets killed off. In yeah. a second, you get a much, much more of a scene in the, in the you actually see properly the uh, performance of Robert Baccaro in the in the director's cut because he has a, a really good scene with uh, Tom Cruise. Yeah, Picardo has and, a long long history with Rob Bottin as well because he was yeah. in The Howling, he was in uh, Inner Space. Yeah. Yes. He was in Total Recall. Yeah. Oh, he must oh, have he must have gotten he, used to being made. Yeah. He was, oh, yes, uh, he, was, Johnny he, was, he was Johnny, Johnny Cat. Cat. Yeah. Get ready for a surprise! Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he was in a lot of stuff that Rob Bottin worked on. Um, yeah. Do you, Does anyone know how long Tangerine Dream was given? For, three, uh, weeks. Three, three, three weeks. Three weeks? It uh, shows. <laughs> That's yeah. all I'll say. And I think Goldsmith it was... three months. Uh, he, yeah. he, he was reluctant to do it. I think he was, as I said, Sis Humboldt forced Scott on it. To doing that and getting another score, it was he he he, is, he was he was him himself who edited to to the theatrical version because he still he desperately wanted some some control over the film still. But there's a very poignant thing at the end of the documentary. He said, having Tangerine, he should have you know after that fateful press screening with all the, everybody on parts, which uh, caught everyone laughing. He should have you know that's why he, he became paranoid. He said he, in hindsight he should have stuck to his guns and brought out the film he wanted, which was the more or less the, the director's cut we got, we've got now. Right. He should have, it's to, to, in hindsight, he should have kept Joe Goldsmith's score on there and not been pressured and influenced by that press screening. Well, how many films did he have under his, his belt at that point? It was that, that was his, it was it was his the fourth film, the Judas, Alien and Blade Runner. Alien, so yeah. This is okay. his fourth. Yeah. So still, still the young, still sort of the young filmmaker. Yeah, no, he was very. Um, he knew what he was doing. He was a commercial filmmaker, but the problem is that um, you know he got run over on Alien by Terry Rawlings, and then you have Blade Runner, which was just an absolute colossal failure when it came out. So I mean, you you are you're obviously going to be under the gun to do something right for Legend and. And, and it's just like, if it doesn't work for your producer or whomever, they're just going to say, hey, well, yeah, remember, you made Blade Runner, so um, this is not working for us, and we're going to take it over. And, I mean, it wasn't until, like, 
we talked about this yesterday, David, like Thumb and Louise, where finally it was like, oh, here's a bona fide Commercial hit and that, critical and, success. Yeah. So, when was Labyrinth out, by the way? Uh, 86. That was, yeah. that was 86. That was the following year. And then Cole was out in 83? Three. 83. Yep. I don't know. It didn't. You know what? It's it's a little bit of an odd choice that they would have done this because I wouldn't say that the film world or film fandom was really into big kind of fantasy stuff. He had Excalibur in '81, shot so, by the same guy too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alex Thompson. Yep. Um, so I don't know if maybe that was part. It, it, you know, it was more of like a fairy tale. But it, from the liner notes I was reading. I mean, originally it was it was written really dark, like there was some some pretty, pretty uh, you know risque stuff in there, um, which they had to tame. And it's you know as we were saying, Eric, it just feels like half of a film. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like you're you have a lot of context for character motivations or even story motivations. It's sort of like you've 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 jumped in the middle of a movie. that's exactly the problem I had watching it and I have only seen it I mean for the first time last month um, both versions so I don't know what I was expecting I didn't expect it to be that uh, that messy and and so but I also didn't expect it to be that confusing and just like where it started was you're right like in the middle of some other film where we weren't introduced to characters and we had no idea what the relationships were and and we somehow needed to understand that ourselves even though we don't know what the what kind of world we're in here and i mean the basic story i understand but you know lily running around in the fields and going to the house and then all of a sudden meeting up with jack like what is the relationship between them and then why is going to see the unicorn so forbidden that was never explained and then it just became an utter mess it and, would have been better if they'd established you know lily trying to get jack's trust and then becoming immersed in his world over time even if you have to totally. do a montage or something yes you know it's also what's really bizarre about this movie is just how small it feels. Um, even it though needed it, a is, big, it needed a bigger budget, that's, it, that's it's, not, it's, not, it's not so much that. It's just, especially when you see something like Lord of the Rings that came out 15 years later, how expansive that world is. This is a similar type of movie where it just feels like we are we are in these tiny areas and not really able to explore the world that just seems so magical and and the incredible production design. It comes through, but I just feel like even the amount of characters that are in it, there's only like six or seven. Like there's three goblins that are that are that are trying to find Lily and and, and Jack instead of like a whole army. It just seems like it's so very and small. And there's one guy fast asleep in the cottage. You don't even see him in the vertical cut. Yeah, I don't mind the fact that there's not many goblins because my my sense was that darkness was had been banished. Right, he was trying to get mm. back mm-hmm. a dominance in the world, so he only had limited resources. That that didn't bother me, but I totally agree with your point that it's a very myopic story it seems like it's 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 missing a lot of of again more of the 
the landscape, and then that's unfortunately a, a, a feature of being relegated to sets, whereas Lord of the Rings, they you know, it was also a big long commercial for, hey, come to New Zealand and enjoy the grand vistas. Um, they weren't, they didn't have that advantage. So there's, Appa- there are going to be Apparently the Vistas script had a lot more people involved, a lot more extras in, involved in the script, but, uh, mm. you know, the, the script was loved by everybody, but I said, if you filmed this script, it would cost like $400 million, so they had mm. to tone it down. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they wanted to film everything within, uh, within the uh, the studio and they didn't want to go outside they didn't want to do anything else they wanted to do everything indoors but then they were forced to uh film a, well the lighting burns down <laughs> burns down the studio the 007 stage well it was the lighting they wanted to film probably in Yosemite Park that's what Scott was thinking of but he couldn't but the lighting would have been very difficult for him to light properly the way he wanted it so that's why he wanted wanted control that's why he ended up on the 007 stage because of, he had to control the lighting of it and it's, it's, it's great it's gorgeous but again it just feels so again claustrophobic isn't the word I'm looking for but it just feels like it's crushed um, we're only in a very, very small part of this universe where I think just seeing a bit like that last shot at the end of the director's cut is just so beautiful and it just seems so expansive. And I'm like, where is this world in the rest of the film? And of course, when we first see the unicorns, some of the best cinematography I've ever seen um, and, and just magical practical effects to make me believe that, yeah, oh my God, there are two unicorns and it doesn't seem to be too difficult, but to get the horses to do what they got them to do. Um, I mean, they're a character amongst themselves, and it's so wonderfully done. And, of course, the beautiful cinematography by Alex Thompson, who worked on Excalibur, Alien 3, Black Beauty, Labyrinth, some of those films we brought up today. So those are the things that I I liked about it, but it just, again, just felt like a complete and utter um, mess. And, of course, the American version was, was, was even more messy. It was just a strange, strange movie with a really strange strange history the, the theatrical version seemed to cut out the first first part of the film which was set up in the director's cut wonderfully by goldsmith's music but his, his music kind of it, it sets up the whole what's going to happen and he, like he's describing so in, in his music that things something really bad is going to happen soon it's all sorts of lovely and sweet with my true love's eyes and when you get to the unicorn so you know something bad is going to happen something tragic is going to happen it's going to cause the plot to move forward you don't get that in the theatrical case it, 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 they're trying to rush to the unicorn section very very quickly and there's a lot of good stuff it does miss out in that in that opening section of the film well, one of the things for me and, and i wrote wrote this down as well was the editing was just all over the place for the for the theatrical cut and i even i even wrote down my neck was broken in one edit uh it oh it yes goes, it goes from I can't remember the the precise, but it goes from one location to the other one, and I'm like, what happened in between there? In one edit, it just goes from this one location to the other, and I'm like, my neck got broken in that cut. Yeah. Holy crap! And, in, and in, in the in the director's cut, there's a very weird edit. It's just like it's like a twisty. The last time I saw the edit like that was on Star Trek on the thing on Mirror Mirror when the bad you see the bad Kirk changed into the the good Kirk on the alternate universe. It's like a twisty cut. But you only see your sort that sort of thing on television. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, you're right. Now that I think about it, you're right. That was the only kind of weird transition, right? It yeah. was so odd, and it was in an odd is, place too. And it stood like a sore thumb as well yeah, to me. It, right. it, just, it was it, it just jarred. 
Yeah, what a weird. Any uh, any other thoughts on on the film itself, guys? There's the in the, in the director's cut. There's a, a scene where I I write down uh, Gump, and then I go Gollum at the same mm. time mm. when it's like he's he's basically thrashing around on the ground, and I'm like, wait a second, is this what? Because this is also the same year that the Black Cauldron came out, mm. the Disney film which also has a character that's very similar to Gollum. So I'm thinking, is this Ridley Scott trying to do trying to do his Lord of the Rings or his push towards that? I don't know. Uh, David, any last thoughts on the film? Um, I, I think I remember liking the, you know, the Robert Picardo scene too. Oh <laughs> my goodness, darkness. yes. That was about the only... Yeah time that I had a sense that there was imminent danger everything else seems so lackadaisical because the score and just the tempo and the editing just didn't seem like there was really any real danger to anything that was happening to the characters that was yeah. one of the only parts that I thought and even then I think it was it was almost sort of played off a little too kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, it was a cool. I mean, the the practical effects were amazing. Yeah. Um, so that's about it. Aside from that, but, but yeah. reading for the actual cut, look, Bakari barely has any screen time. He's from, he's there saying, "Yeah, I'm about to eat tune." That's it. He's gone. He gets a much better scene in the director's cut. He actually has a. You can actually see fully the, the performance he did. So uh, he he really was uh, short changed on the theatrical version because he's barely up. Well, blink and you blink and you miss him. Mm -hmm. So would uh, would you watch the movie again, um, just on your own, Robert? I have it on DVD, um, so I can. Uh, but the, the like I said, the last time I watched it, or I, I've I, I've mentioned to you guys earlier, anyway, um, the last time I watched it has probably been like fifteen years. So would I watch it again now that I've seen it both films back to back? Um, it was. I'd I'd be more likely to watch the director's cut. Than the, than the theatrical cut. Jason, I'm the same as well, but I would rather watch the director's cut because it's a far better representation of, of the script and the material than the um, than the, the theatrical version, which is probably still be shown on terrestrial television many times. And I'll just avoid it because that's not the cut I want to see. I want to see the cut with the Jerry Goldsmith score, and that is the director's cut, and that's. And the film works far, far better with Jerry Goldsmith's music than Tangerine Dreams. No, just a bit of Tangerine Dream. No, same, yeah, same. I, I, I would watch it. I mean, I'm glad I have the the Blu-ray. I don't, I don't uh, regret buying it because I think just for the music and the visuals, it's it's not bad. I mean, I can forgive some of the other stuff, but it's nice to see those those two elements really in full form, and then of course the, the Tim Curry character. So. Everything else is, you know, once in a while, I'll throw it on, and it's it's good. It's it's an it's enter entertaining and enjoyable for what it is. Yeah, I don't think I'm gonna watch it again, and if I do, I'd have to do it by myself. I think my <laughs> wife wanted to divorce me um, while I was watching it because she kept on turning her head and goes, "What the hell are you watching? What is this? This is really terrible." Um, so, but I mean, it does look beautiful, and someone mentioned that if this was like a uh, like a, a French abstract film 
<laughs> it probably will be much more successful. Just a series of images because it is a, a beautiful, beautiful looking movie. And I mean, all of Ridley Scott's films always look just gorgeous, but it's not enough to, to, to bring me back to it. However, uh, we are now going to talk about the score. And I think that's something that, uh, especially Jerry Goldsmith's score, something that we can always return to uh, time and time again. All right, now let's get into the score portion of the show. Um, and, and during this uh, portion, we are going to compare, contrast uh, at least three out of the four cues um, with uh, Goldsmith's cue and then Tangerine Dream's uh, cue, which will be uh, a kind of an interesting exercise. But I want to focus on first Jerry Goldsmith's music because I think it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, what some people might not know is that he actually began working on the score during pre-production. He was writing songs and he, he wrote that brilliant waltz that would have to be choreographed for the uh, dress waltz sequence. For me, Goldsmith's score is just rich, uh, lyrically beautiful, uh, dazzling orchestrations, distinctive, quirky um, electronics that add a, a wonderful layer of color to the score. As I said, it's a masterpiece, and I, and I think uh, when I was talking to uh, uh, David yesterday about the score and, and how I'd kind of rank it amongst uh, Goldsmith's best efforts, uh, and if this makes any sense to you guys, uh, for me, this score just kind of stands on its own. Um, I, I can't place it above any other Goldsmith score. I can't place it below any other Goldsmith score. It just kind of belongs on its own mantle. It's its own thing. Every time I listen to the score, I'm, I'm discovering new things, hearing new things, uh, hearing a, a hint of a theme in one track only to come to, to hear it come to fruition in the next track. And and I'm sure we're all going to learn a lot uh, from uh, uh, David and his uh, analysis of the score later on in this program. Um, because, you know, even going over the score with David yesterday, I, I was learning stuff about uh, the score that I hadn't noticed before. Uh, Legend, for me, is is one of Goldsmith's greatest curiosities. It's one that keeps offering more and more every time you experience it. And having just experienced it in context only a few months ago, I now have a, a deeper appreciation for what Goldsmith did. His score, uh, in my opinion, should be studied, analyzed, dissected to uncover more of its secrets. And for those that don't own the score, well, I mean, you get this wonderful analysis of the score in the film in the liner notes of the expanded album on uh, Silver Screen Records uh, from uh, uh, liner note writer Paul Andrew McLean. It's fantastic. And, you know, honestly, I wish this would get a proper book, you know, a whole book on the film and the score, kind of like what The Lord of the Rings got. But, you know, this film isn't The Lord of the Rings, so that's never going to happen. So, but I think it's um, it's a Goldsmith masterpiece that just, um, it just stands on its own. Uh Jason, what do you think? And another, uh, I adhere to what you just said, everything that I entirely agree with, but it's also a very important score in Jerry Goldsmith's career because it's the first time he worked with uh, Mike Was Trevor. And he was only there originally to uh, record the, the dances, like the dress waltz and the fairy dance. And Goldsmith loved the um, working on in CBS because originally the, also the, originally the guy who was supposed to do the uh, recording of the score was Alan Snelling. 
and uh, girls with like what Mike Ross was doing and he said I'll, I'll use you for the entire score and started a lovely 15 year relationship they had when Joe Goldsmith came to the UK he worked more or less most of the time with on CBS Studios and with Mike Ross Trevor this roundabout even even though he wasn't working on this working on, on the actual films itself he would be like Total Recall he'd be using his studio and he'd be around there so they had a very good relationship with Mike Ross and the score itself, you know, it's it's it, what a what a good post, what a good score to start a career with Jerry Goldsmith with Waters for Water, Mike Ross because it was an it is the most lyrical, the most beautiful, the most wonderful, wonderfully lyrical sort of score I've I've heard in years when I when it, particularly when I first heard it and I've and I've, I've listened to it I think at least three or four times a year ever since. It's a score I always go back to because of. As I said, it, it, it's sheer beauty, and as I said to a lot of times, a lot of people, it's you, you can, you don't. A great film score is one you can have the visuals in your in your head with the music. You don't need to see the film. And I had not seen the film for once, two, four years ago, but I still had the visuals in my head, thanks really to the silver screen notes, and the, and the music, and 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 the music. I, I could actually see. I probably had seen the film before I saw the film. If you, if you, if you, if you get what I'm meaning. Is an important. I think it's one of the we do, we're not going to mention, but I think I'll mention it now. Which I think is so, so what a great composer Jerry Goldsmith was, and it's the cue. Forgive me when he in the scene when he got when Tom Cruise with Jack goes to see the stricken unicorn, and he he's like he's, he's apologizes for what happens, you know, and he thinks he's he's, he's responsible. And then you suddenly see the, the other unicorn come in. He's angry, and you can see here in the music. As soon as he comes in, like the Jerry Goldsmith score gets very harsh and dark, and a lot of brass there, showing showing that this horse is not in a happy mood. But you, you get that in the music, not from any conversation, any dialogue. The music is the dialogue in that scene, and it's so, and it shows what a superb composer Jerry Goldsmith was. There's not many composers around today or then who could have done this, that sort of scene and scored it as well as Jerry did on on that occasion. It shows what a master composer he was, and he was perfect for the film. And it was amazing. And it was good. I think the reason Goldsmith did this film, considering all the agree had with Alien, was because he loved the scripts. And he was he scored the film for the, because of the quality, the quality of that script. It's, it, it, a lot of great Goldsmith scores. He scores not just the, the final product. He scores a good script, and he and he scored that script so so well. And. Uh, as I said, it's one, in my opinion, like Rivek, it's one of his greatest scores. I think it's probably off his, off his top five in his career. And as I said, if it was properly on the film, probably in the United States, I have absolutely no doubt he would have won awards for it. Even maybe probably a second Academy Award. Yeah, before we get anybody else's opinion, and I agree with you, uh, uh, Jason, um, you brought up Mike Ross Trevor, and he's an unsung hero 
on this project, and it's not just because of the recording. It's because when producer James Fitzpatrick wanted to release the expanded edition of the score, they couldn't find the album masters. And it was only because of Mike Ross Trevor uh, that they were able to release the score because he had stored a set of two-track digital tapes from the original sessions mixed down from the eight-track, which he knew would be worth preserving. Now, these were complete takes. There were no edits done. So, I mean, there was a lot of work in uh, recreating the tracks. But without Mike Ross Trevor and, um, you know, his forethought to keep a, a good copy of this score, uh, this one would have been lost uh, forever. Uh, Robert, your opinion on Jerry Goldsmith's score? You guys have covered it. Uh, I can honestly say I, I would I would echo anything that you guys have, have said about Jerry Goldsmith's score. One thing that does strike me, though, is the fact that Jerry Goldsmith, um, it's a shame that um, he's no longer with us because he could teach composers today how to score certain scenes in in such a, an amazingly subtle and then at times will just absolutely hit you over the head and go bam and it's just um, it, and and it, this happens a lot of in a lot of cases of, of of goldsmith of that era and i go back to the final conflict i had recently heard that again and listening and listening to it on headphones is is a pretty amazing experience because it weaves in and out and that sort of thing legend kind of does here as well is it weaves itself throughout the film and it it really just it hits the right moments and when it has when it has to be bold it's bold when it has to sit back it sits back and that was to for me that's the brilliance of jerry goldsmith is that he has that kind of uh that that sense to really to that makes the score work and in in films that may not necessarily have been the best in the entire world. There's an old saying, Jerry Goldsmith scored the movie that directors wished that they made or hoped that they would make, <laughs> yeah, not the true. films that they ended up exactly. with in a lot of times. So, I yep. mean, Final Conflict's a perfect example. He scored that, it was like it was the greatest movie ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, absolutely. The Second Coming is gonna be one of the best cues ever. And really, they're looking at some really crappy, you know, <laughs> 1980s <laughs> Commodore 64 computer graphics, yeah. you know, we yeah. list look the stars align, but it was brilliant.
I mean, yeah. and and that was something that followed him around for his entire career, whether it was a, a brilliant movie or whether it was really not a very good movie, but he was the work ethic and the the creative and the artistic uh, just fiber of him yeah. and his, his like his work ethic he he wouldn't he wouldn't write down if the movie was less than what he thought it deserved he always wrote the best music he possibly could and or he found inspiration in some of these films i think legend probably the point that he came into it had so much promise and it was so evocative that the music was the result. He was inspired by the story before it, it went through all those numbers of, of, of edits and what it was, it was uh, mangled so much. So what we're hearing is a very pure sense of, of legend. And I think it, it does the best job in portraying what that whole idea was supposed to be about. It crystallized it in terms of the music content. Precisely. It all it always it always amazes me, and Eric alluded to this. Every time you hear it, you hear something different. You hear something that you go, "Oh, okay, that something I hadn't quite caught before." Or you know, such, whether it's a series of notes, whether it's a a theme that reoccurs, it's it's always a, a, a new discovery. At least at least for me, when it comes to legend. Can I ask you guys something? If I can play this on the piano. Because Eric and I were talking about this yesterday, and I'm not quite sure what this theme would be. It's the... That's that's right in the first... Uh, actually, at the beginning of the unicorn um, cue. But you hear it throughout the score in various guises. And is it, I don't know if it represents Jack or Jack and Lily in there. Because I would think tr my true love uh, would be what symbolizes their, their love for each other. And that other one, that other theme or motif seems more something associated with Jack. I think it's Jack. Because I yeah. think you see that sort of sort of that that kind of notes at the start of the queue when he he jumps he appears out of mm -hmm. nowhere in a more brassy, more heroic version. But he, he uses that I think for because Jack was you know he, he wants to be heroic, but he's reluctant to be heroic. But is that I think that's there's this, I think it's I think you probably see that that piece of music appear when you see Jack on the um, on screen or Tom Cruise on mm -hmm. screen. You know, being concerned about you know, being concerned about what Lily is doing with the unicorns. He doesn't want. She, 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 she keeps telling her not to touch the unicorn, and so I do. I feel like it could be more related to maybe also hint to Jack, Jack and Lily's relationship. How as to how he really does. You know, he's very fond of her, and in more less he loves he loves her, and he really doesn't want her to have any harm done to her, or heard her to cause harm accidentally which was what, what happens so that i think you know considering that's the uh, it also appears that, that that piece of music also appears at the end and on the on in the ring at the end of the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the ring if, if you go yeah. toward the end of the film when, when he when he uh, he's he he find he gets gets the ring out of the water and he's just he goes up and uh, tries to free her from the spell 
to me there could well be the Jack and maybe a hint of the Jack Lily relationship is in that, 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 that small motif. So David, if you want to do us a favor, and, and I'm not sure whether this is correct or not, but does, does that theme then, or does the Jack the Champion theme, is that a variation of what you just played? Can you play those mm. both back to back and are they at all similar? No, no, it's not really. Uh, that's from the armor. <laughs> so is Jack, Jack has a Jack theme, but then that transforms. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't transform. He just gets a new Jack the Champion theme yeah, in that's, the armor. That's, I think we, I think I prefer calling it like the sword theme or the destiny theme. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's sort of, yeah, that that's where he, because the, the, See that chromatic thing? It sounds almost kind of like goofy. Um, yeah. Like it's clumsy, not goofy, yes. clumsy. Like he's he's this young, kind of inexperienced, kind of innocent, and that having that kind of chromatic is is kind of gives you that. It's not that kind of firm. The you know the. Those are very, very, you know, to drop it down an octave. That's much more commanding. And doesn't that kind of heroic motif that plays also when Lily uh, strikes the sword against the uh, the, the chain armor to, mm-hmm. to free the, the unicorn, right? So that's that's yes. definitely signifies more of both characters resolve to defeating darkness whereas that the opening and that again comes across in a few different places it's still presented more as a heroic but a very it's it's not the same resolve it's kind of un, an uncertain an uncertain or an untested heroic motif. He's reluctant to be a hero. I don't think he's... he's yeah, he's very much. He's forced we, to be a want hero. A, we want a hero. So what, what, where can we find him? Is it, you're it. You'll do. Oh. Oh, yeah, because right. he's he's an innocent. And I think that's... You know, it, it, we, Eric and I were joking, saying, you know, maybe they should have cast the, the, the cast of Ferris Bueller in, in yeah. the yeah, entire thing. I mean, to, you can actually almost see Matthew Broderick in that role. Because he's supposed to be untested and, and uncertain now and maybe physical attribute wise he, he wouldn't you know he's not like Tom Cruise which was a good thing for being a forest kind of dweller is to be athletic and whatnot but he yeah he has to have that kind of naive naivete purity yeah. and he, he wasn't predisposed to being this kind of like kick-ass Conan type character that was never you know his his kind of thing that was like you know casting Arnold Schwarzenegger on the role of Quaid for Total Recall it's like well okay well that's not a surprise when he wipes out all those guys although in the book it was kind of the same thing casting is so so crucial um, and yeah so I think Goldsmith basically took the essence of the Jack character and imbued it with that that a little bit of that uncertainty that that the the 
the not straight heroic component until well, later on. When I don't. I don't know. How, I don't know how you were when you were fifteen, but you were pretty clumsy. I was pretty clumsy oh, when I was yeah. fifteen. <laughs> So, so, so that's now. that's gold. Well, yeah, not much has changed. Um, the thing is, is Bad that uh, um, the thing is, is that um, that that's probably what Goldsmith was going for, and in a very subtle way, which which he yep. is a brilliant master at to th- to throw that clumsiness in there, yeah. and whether or not you're whether or not you pick it up the first time, your brain does. Yeah, tonally speaking, it's yeah, it's it's a. Uh... So it's just, those are those two chords. It's a flat six chord to a, a tonic. Um, but you've got that minor, duh, that minor to major. And that, yeah, and uh, by the way, I wasn't saying that in a disparaging manner. I think no, it's no, no. perfectly mm. contextual to establishing this this character very much up front. This is, this is the, the motif or the theme that accompanies Jack when we first see him. It's like, oh. He's got the, the brass playing it, so it's heroic, yeah. to- tomberly speaking, but melodically and harmonically, it's a little off. It's like, oh, you're not quite sure of yourself, aren't you? <laughs> so before we go into more detail about the, this unicorn uh, cue, uh, David, I do want to ask you, or you know, even Jason and Rob can jump in here. Um, Goldsmith wasn't necessarily known as a leitmotivic composer, but... And even in the liner notes, I think they're hesitant to say that this is a, a, a leitmotivic score. What are your thoughts? Um, it's. I think that's an overused term or analysis. I, I don't see this as being leitmotivic like Wagner's Ring or even Williams' Star Wars. I think there's themes that are associated. There's some motifs, like you've got that sort of kind of... Um, ornamental figure for the disgusting goblins. which again is off-putting to uh, some listeners. They don't like that DX7 brassy blah, but I think it's perfect. It works perfectly in the context of the storyline that the, the score. Um, no, I, I don't, I don't think Goldsmith kind of brings them up in the same literal or the functional way that a light motivic score necessarily would do. I think there there's some associations with themes, but he's not like stopping and then necessarily recapitulating an idea just because there's a character on screen or there's a motif, a narrative motif that's that needs to be scored that way. I think he, and that's probably why no one really talks about it in this way because I don't think it is. So since Goldsmith usually, um, you know, will compose you know, one major theme for the film, and then he will pick that apart and maybe use parts for, for another character or whatever. I mean, is there a legend main theme? Um, I think that there's elements that he, he carries throughout the film. So, and it's more, more of, I would say, sophisticated harmony that 
is pervasive. So he something like the um, the unicorn theme. With that there's there's two actually with the so that suspension there. And he does this a lot in in various themes where there's these so So there's another one. He's got on uh, Lily's song, My True Love's Eyes, he's he's doing what sometimes we call a slash chord. So it's it's one chord over a different pedal note, which would is not part of the chord. Um, so you're getting these these expansive harmonies where you've got much more than just basic triads. That's that's basically a triad, and then you know, get this richness in the harmonies which he i think it's throughout it's 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 woven throughout the score and throughout the different themes that's that's one sort of element that i i see recurring he's got this kind of expansive harmony idea and the other thing too about the interesting thing about doing these suspensions is that it creates you know sort of this ambiguity because I don't think he ever saw this film necessarily as archetypal, like you've, you've got pure good and pure bad. You've got these temptations in the characters that are basically good, but they're not perfect. And they have the ability to be turned. I think even the way they characterize darkness, I wouldn't say he's just this completely one-dimensional, uh, as much as you know, he didn't have a lot of time on screen, but... I think because of the amazing richness of Curry's acting, he imbued the character with a lot more levels. And I think that's something that Goldsmith's score really um, embodies is this, this harmonic sophistication, which underscores the, the, the character's, sophistication as far as not falling into archetypal i'm just pure good i'm just pure bad i think it's one of ghost's most complex scores i think as i said as david said there's a lot more more motifs in this score than your than usual jay goldsmith score usually in my when i see goldsmith he has one main theme maybe as a, a secondary theme he uses for action and you see maybe a theme for the for maybe the, the villain of the film and that's usually what the, the goldsmith formula has been but uh, this one, to me, when I listen to it, is far more complex and more, you know, limitative. It's got its themes. It's, there's there's the main the main theme. There's the sub themes. Different different sections of the film. It, it's it's a far more complicated and interesting mix of musical motifs in this film than a lot of Goldsmith scores before that or since. Um, I'm gonna disagree a little bit. I would say definitely for post Total Recall, I'm gonna say yes. That's pretty much on the mark. I think Goldsmith's seminal scores of the '60s and '70s, though, were probably so complicated that most people didn't grasp the the, the architecture because he would do these great set pieces, which on surface seemed really amazing and exciting, and didn't seem to necessarily have a lot of um, connectivity to his central themes, but something like Papillon has just as many themes as Legend and different figures and recurring motifs. It's just that 
it's it's not necessarily as cognizant people aren't as cognizant about that or capricorn one has some amazing set pieces and again they're tied into what his his central ideas it's just i think with legend they're they're sophisticated but they're still you're still able to understand them like you'll be able to relate to them better because they're presented in a way which maybe is a little bit more um obvious and i think goldsmith was was forever this alchemist and this this really really kind of cerebral composer who could could do things developmentally that you'd have to listen to over 200 times to to start figuring out like his grand design um so and and that's i i'm even finding that i have to listen to something 50 times and then i might finally realize oh crap that's an inversion of this other theme or someone told me oh yeah capricorn one is basically a bitonal riff of also sprax zarathustra i'm like holy really and then as soon as someone told me that i heard it i'm like oh my god i never picked that up ever <laughs> yeah. so yeah that the, the dude was uh, levels of of genius and I don't ascribe that term easily to people, but yeah. that guy's brain was thinking yeah. in, in ways that most people don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not a music, you know, you know, I don't, I don't read music, but I'm, I'm just a big fan of music. I just, mm-hmm. I just do love Jay Goldsmith's work. And there's a lot of schools in a way are, are thematic, but I'd like, for example, I always love listening to the sand pebbles and mm-hmm. how he works the things in that. And also, Oh, with the wind and the lion, I think is one of his finest works as well. Some great, great stuff there. And as you said, Capricorn One is absolutely a bombastic score. And uh, I heard that recently about the, you know, as well in there is in there. And I always thought of it also Capricorn One wise as a as an anti establishment sort of theme too it's okay not not a lot not like uh, it's supposed to be this huge like that's the u.s american brave anthem but it's not it's a a corrupt anthem uh, mm-hmm. for that in that film which i've always thought of it in that, that respect so that shows yeah the the genius of the man To legend, he used all that genius to produce this this fantastic work, which to me was an even even bigger Swarsburg of absolute riches. As I said, you can because of the 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 themes and the sub things he produced. It is to me, it is one one of the great fantasy film scores. Before Howard Shaw did his wonderful work on Lord of the Rings, it, it, it is it, it's it's a shorter version of it. Of course, it was only seventy minutes long compared to the ten hours of Howard Shaw, but it's still one of the great fantasy film scores of of or forever, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel bad for uh, Tangerine Dream here because um, we don't talk about them at all. <laughs> but you know what? That's fine. 
Uh, we'll get to them. We'll get to them in just a minute. But all this talk about Goldsmith is definitely warranted. Um, I, I do want to play uh, some cues for for our audience here. But uh, let's you know let's analyze them a bit, and let's kind of give them some context. So I think the first cue that we're going to play is 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 one of the first cues, um, or it's near the beginning of the movie. Um, and we've been talking about it. it's the it's the unicorns uh, track. It's a it's a very lengthy track, and it plays over top of uh, Jack's introduction and him leading uh, Lily to see the two unicorns. Uh, but here, you know, Lily is not content on just gazing at the magical creatures. She has to get closer, and then eventually it leads to the demise of of one of them. And this cue, uh, you know, I love I love long cues that uh, that take their time to develop and play around with multiple thematic ideas. Uh, Jason mentioned that, you know, that not only this whole whole entire score, but this cue, you know, it's brilliant musical storytelling. Having said that, um, and David mentioned it earlier, um, there are some things that could possibly um, turn off listeners. And it's the sudden interruption of, uh, you know, electronics for the, for the, for the, for the goblins it's just this weird weird sound that just you know just as you think a piece is getting going all these kind of weird warbly sounds pop up and you know it doesn't bother me at all because those sounds are, are part of the fabric of the score um but it and it, it doesn't really last long and and after you know we hear those strange noises uh, you know we do get some of these this patented expansive Gold, goldsmith string writing at the end of the queue, which is just absolutely um, uh, magical. So, uh, Jason, uh, for the queue, the unicorns, uh, uh, what do you think about it? Uh, it's, as I said before, it is one of the build-up to what's the main part of the film with the unicorn using using his horn and the um, what happens in the next queue. Because those, those three, the first few queues of the film just gradually builds up the tension. Without those cues of Goldsmith's music, it'd be a very boring film, you know, because nothing's probably, it seems to be happening as much on screen as it should be doing. But Goldsmith really builds up the tension of his music, and the Unicorns is a great example of that. Particularly the start when, they, when Jack and Lily meet for the first time, and he said, I want to give, you know, I've got a problem that wants you to show you something, which she, which she turns out to be these unicorns. And, uh, and Goldsmith just builds it up. You know, it's, you feel in the music, it's a, I'm not, I'm not talking like if David's, you know, technically, but it's, as, as, a, as a music fan, I, you can feel the tension, something's building up, there's going to be a payoff in this queue further down the line. And when Jerry Goldsmith hits the strings, you know, towards towards the end of this queue, it is. I think the only time it got as close to sheer beauty in his string writing is the trees in the Medicine Man. It ranks up that that that, that little segment. It is just as beautiful as that the strings in the Medicine Man, and it really does catch you. And you could you could listen to that string section for forever, and it just built. You know, and the tension is built. And, and towards the end of it, it's a very brassy and very. Like it's like some sort of like thing of don't do this in the music. Even you, you, you can have Tom Cruise is saying don't do don't go closely, and even the music is saying don't do what you're doing. You, you could have could have could have consequences of your actions here if you do it. Even the music is telling Lily to stop and and slow down and 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 stand down. But it, it, it's such it's such a descriptive cue, 
But as I said, you, you don't even need the videos, as I said, to, to, to know. Because there's so much emotion and thought put into this music. It is, it, few composers can, can, can produce this. Robert, do you have anything to add? Uh, same. Uh, I echo what uh, what, um, what Jason has to say. You get the um, the feeling that there's an unease here with uh, with what Lily is doing. Yet there is still a beauty to the cue. So as she as she approaches, as Jason said, there's a build up there, but there's that unease. But then there's also still that beauty that's there. So it's it's kind of it's it's again what makes Jerry Goldsmith brilliant is the fact that he's able to play that uh, those two emotions at the same time and do it like uh, thematically and tonally in the uh, in in that uh, cue for the for the unicorns. Okay, David, let us have it. <laughs> the unease actually comes from this. There's a, a Goldsmith's using a, a minor second figure, sort of, or I see this. That kind of figure, which already kind of gives you a sense of that unease. So that's where he's, he's using that as counterpoint against that more um evocative type of theme for the the unicorns um which again how again has uh that figures in more of those suspended chords and those advanced chords the so so that's 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 that segment that he sort of takes out of that theme for a smaller kind of presentation of the unicorns as a single chord. But in, in more of the expanded, the other thing that he's doing there too is he's using what we call thematic imitation between parts. So the string, the violins are, and then the cellos are, they're mirroring it in, in within the harmony so you're getting this really luxurious kind of very full and evocative um statement that's completely you know a, a rhapsodic in in a lot of ways um and and it's funny because in some ways you you'd think okay uh, a lot of composers would kind of hold back until the end of the film or the last quarter of the or the last you know act of the film to sort of do the the really magnificent kind of over the top presentation of a theme like they'll they'll kind of ramp up to it and this was and goldsmith has done that too he he wouldn't go completely hog wild right in the first presentation but i think this may be the shortcomings of the film itself and the 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 need or the desire to really exemplify these these beings the the unicorns as this uh, otherworldly type of of uh, precious thing that represents just pure goodness he had to he had to really kind of sell that because as as Jason said not really much is going on um, as far as you know they're basically just staring at stuff it could have been a, a nice Hallmark commercial. So 
it's it's important for the music to establish how important that those unicorns are so when things happen to them there's there's more of a profound sense of of loss and with that let's hear the unicorns with music composed and conducted by jerry goldsmith and performed by the national philharmonic orchestra and chorus
Interestingly enough, too, for Darkness, I know we're not talking about him. I guess we are later on. Shoot. Yeah, we will later, yeah. But he's using open fifths. He's not using the minor third. He's not doing that. He's doing... Hmm. So he is going up to the third, but he's... A lot of his scoring is got the male chorus and even the strings playing these... The, the open fifths, the, the, the F... It's an F minor. Uh, the FC... So it's it's not again it's it's almost a little ambiguous as far as the intention because without that the third which really solidifies um, the chord. Remember my jazz days when we were talking about voicings. They said you can leave the fifth out. You the 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 root and the third are really what's important. And if you had like a seventh, because the overtone series. The fifth is part of the natural overtone series of, of, a, of a, a note. So you don't need to actually have the fifth in there. Um, so it's really neat when you get rid of that third, whether it's a minor or major, you're losing your, your sense of tonally, what is that? Is, is, is it, because that's, you know, danger. And that's much more positive. The other thing that Goldsmith does a lot in the here too is doing that which James Horner made half his career on with that chord progression. Um, but Goldsmith, again, his voicings are different. So Goldsmith, so yeah, he's not, he's not going, he's not going from the, the root to going down to the, the subdominant. He's, he's making it, he's, he's staying on that A flat even though that's over an uh, D flat major going down to the A flat minor. So he's all these different things he's doing, the way he's voicing his chords is making things much more ambiguous, not so straightforward, not whether it's, it has to do with the, dr the dramatic tension or the actual tonal tension of the score. He, he's making things not so obvious. And actually, I just remember this because I have to admit this. I haven't watched the film since last fall. Sorry. Um, I didn't get a chance to this last week. It was just crazy. But I remember that line with before I think darkness goes down the tubes. Like, what is what is light without darkness? Yeah. So there's that, that, that narrative thematic motif right there. There's always got to be some... Uh, element of evil and good. So I think Goldsmith actually really took this to heart and and provided a score that wasn't straightforwardly heroic or straightforwardly romantic or straightforwardly evil. It's it's kind of rests inside the cracks of of that. How much uh, kind of fiddling around is is Goldsmith doing in order to find that right tone? I mean, because you like you said that you could easily just do it simplistically, or I mean, and then then once you get to that chord or that tone or that sound, does does that become a conscious thing that he does to weave throughout the score, and that becomes the basically the sound of the score? Um. I don't know. Unfortunately, I never got a chance to talk to him. So these are things only he could answer. I think my guess would be that he was so well trained and so well schooled, but also so he had that innate sense of of in a very unique sense of scoring 
films. He really got under the under the the superficial element of a film and got into the the motivation of the characters and more more so than probably almost any other composer except maybe Bernard Herrmann. Um, they they kind of got into the DNA and they underscored the subtext in a lot of time in a lot of cases rather than the literal literalness of what was going on what was the, the what was really going on with whatever it was a character or a scene and i think it was always motivated by characters i think goldsmith seemed in interviews i've seen was always interestingly he was always motivated or he was always moved he was always emotionally motivated but his scores are very very cerebral so i think that was probably just like i said a side effect of his just his brain working differently and he had a lot of great training too so he was a creative you know unique individual individual artist which had some just amazing grounding i mean someone told me that he had no hobbies he basically just he studied music he lived breathed and ate music he didn't play golf he didn't te do tennis he didn't even when he joked when he went on vacation he was on the beach he was reading you know synthesizer manuals so <laughs> I think he was just completely entranced and, and just immersed in the world of music. And yeah, no, I mean, and he even said like, he was probably the, I mean, I don't know how many, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of composers that want to become film composers now, but he famously said, you know, he's doing exactly what he wanted to do. You know, he grew up wanting to write music for film and you know, well, why do anything else other than <laughs> the thing that you love? Uh, so now we're going to talk about uh, Tangerine Dream's contribution to this scene. Same scene that uh, Jerry Goldsmith composed the music for, the unicorns. Um, I can't really find much to say about it. It's not a particularly interesting track. Uh, whereas with Goldsmith, there's like themes weaving in and out and so many interesting instrumentations. And I think with this cue, you're only hearing one melody uh, played over and over again. Um, it's kind of annoying. So, uh, Jason, uh, your thoughts on Tangerine Dreams' Unicorns cue? Personally, not a patch on Joey Goldsmiths, unfortunately. Of course, that's sad to say. Even though I'm a huge fan of some of their work, particularly their music on Street Hawk and Christopher Frank, turned Frankie turned a bit of a fine composer of Babylon 5. But in this case, it's like chalk and cheese. Listening to the, their version of the Unicorns, it felt fragmented. It didn't really score the scene as well as Ghosts. Ghosts were more descriptive. Tangerine Dream was more like a, like a synthesized draw most of the time, with a little bit of shakuhachi and some and some little guitar, sample guitar. But there's nothing there really that stands out. I I know Ghosts with score of that Unicorns in my head. I've now listened to that Unicorn score. Tangerine Dreams Unicorns going out two or three times and I, I, I can't remember it. It is just so forgettable. It may work for the score, it may work, work for the film for some people, but for me it, it is just, it, it's not adding to the scene. And that's, that's the difference between the two. In my opinion, it wasn't, it's, it's, it's nothing there I haven't heard before. And it's not really, this is descriptive enough, in my opinion, to work to work on that scene as much as Goldsmith was. So to me, 
if it was a, a choice between Goldsmith and Turn to Dream, who would do the best? Goldsmith wins by a mile. Robert, you had a more um, positive um, reaction to Tangerine Dream's score. So what do you think of this cue compared to what Jerry Goldsmith wrote? Again, this is the it's it's the score that I'm that I that I lived with for the longest. So um, while there isn't the emotional content that the Goldsmith cue has, um, it, it, Jason says it's not a memorable cue. I, whenever I think of Legends, that's it's that's the first cue I think of. The thing for me is the um, the gold the the Goldsmith score hands down wins. But again, there is that whenever those early strains, and I will say this: I don't like what. John Anderson, or whoever, I think it was David Tickle or something like that, um, who the producer, the, doing the, if, if, if I hear David correctly, um, that he did, he did that without um, Tangerine Dream knowing, that's, it's the worst, it's the worst cue on the entire soundtrack. But the unicorn theme, again, it was what I lived with. It's okay. It serves the film for what it is, but I I can't after hearing Goldsmith stuff. No, I can't honestly say that it's 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 a favorite of mine. But it does sit in the background and it does have a bit of nostalgia for me. David, uh, tell us what Tangerine Dream is doing in this queue compared to what Jerry Goldsmith was was doing, and, and how much different it is, and and what's the effect that Tangerine Dream is having on the film here. And compared to what Jerry was doing? Well, I think there is an attempt to reflect what's going on on screen a little bit. It's not quite as ambivalent as other other cues. Um, there is some kind of conscious attempt to make an association with the, the instrumentation. You've got that I'm not sure why they had the shakuhachi. That's the one that Peter Gabriel used on Sledgehammer. It was a very popular sound of the day. And then, of course, most of it's the Fairlight, what we call the Fairlight flute or vocal, which Art of Noise used a lot in whatever that song was that was popular back in the day. And they use that quite a lot throughout the score. That's a recurring sound, so... I'll give them some marks, at least for being slightly tomberly consistent. But you've, as far as harmonically, you've got the... This is basically one, five, four, five. So when uh, Jason said, it's nothing he hasn't heard before, it's because you've heard it a billion times in every rock song. Uh, so yeah, he wasn't far off. <laughs> So it has a couple of stingers too, a couple of FX kind of sound effects that they throw on. It seems like they're kind of um, inserted in after the fact. They weren't necessarily added in a rhythmic sense that would fall in line with whatever the tempo was. It seems like it was an after thought like, oh, it's too scaled down, just throw something there. And it doesn't even have to necessarily coincide on a strong or weak beat, it's kind of like, it's there. So who knows if they even did that? I don't even know if somebody did that after the fact. 
but it, that's what it sounds like and that's that's unfortunately an element that's pervasive throughout their score is these kind of arbitrary kind of little things throwing things at the canvas and hoping they stick and most of them don't they fall off the canvas and smear a long way down well if they only had like three weeks to 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 do the score if I, if I if i heard you guys correctly um what could you do in that time I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna exonerate or or you know tangerine dream for having a short timeline uh that doesn't cut it now maybe compared to what they were used to at the time yeah it, it, maybe i mean they scored sorcerer though without even seeing the film they just, just william freaking sent them the script and they scored it without ever seeing a frame and it was pretty good so I don't know I, maybe maybe it was there was rushed it was jumbled they didn't have a clear sense of what they were supposed to be doing they were definitely better than that I, they're not a bad no group at all no, and I, no, I think it's no, important no. to establish that this was a bad this was a bad outing for them it wasn't indicative of them being a bad group I think if someone had to go with electronic and I think I may have asked somebody on a film score monthly they were talking about it legend recently whether Ridley Scott ever thought of bringing Vangelis in because Vangelis has that more romantic lush sound which would have worked pretty well at least as a substitute for Goldsmith's score because he still has that thematic breadth right everything that Vangelis does has that lyricism and he also has that ability to have this lush orchestration even though he's using synths he's using the same kind of harmonic complexity, uh, but just with a, a different a different tonal, like a different timbral palette, which is synths. And he did it really, really well in Blade Runner and and uh, Antarctica and things like that. So I uh, I don't know. Maybe he he wouldn't have been able to do it in in three or three weeks. Maybe you know he just said nope, can't do it. Move on. Well, yeah, and Tangerine Dream probably was given up different set of instructions and you know they were uh, Scheinberg was obviously trying to aim this American uh, release towards that uh, MTV crowd at the time and they wanted to make this more you know, aimed at the, at the teenagers although this that doesn't make any sense when you watch the movie but I mean that's that's where this more um, modern sound I would say came from and and maybe that's what was uh, Tangerine Dream's direction, and and that's what they had to do in order to fulfill uh, uh, the, the wants and needs of, of the producer. The other interesting thing I found, and this is something that Paul Andrew McLean um, got really right on the on the money in the liner notes, is that Tangerine Dream's approach was much more Eastern European folk, whereas Goldsmith was looking at more western european folk melodies because there are those elements that run rampant through the score where you've got again those open fifths which is you know another another aspect of folk music because of the tuning of of strings like the you know those are the open strings on a violin and you hear that in the fairy dance with um with jack and, and I think that's really evocative. And then, you know, the, you have the... Which is Sing the Wii. So you've got these these this folk element, but it's 
it's definitely rooted in Central or, or Western Europe, European, almost like Mahler or, or Bartok would have would have composed more Mahler, I would say, um, taking folk elements, melodic or harmonic, and then making them more symphonic. A Tangerine Dream used more Eastern European, and even for darkness, they've got sort of this weird, almost East Indian scale going on, which is bizarre, or Middle Eastern scale. And I don't think that that really works against the visuals, because the visuals, clearly, you feel that's this could have been in England or or somewhere like that, not not in you know not in eastern europe and and it has sort of a same similar tone to the keep but the keep seem to be more successful with those kind of using their folk melodies and and sonorities and that it seemed much more appropriate it doesn't seem appropriate in legend does and this just came to my mind how much of an influence do you think the success of the never and never ending story had on changes to this movie and it's and its score musically or filmically well not so much filmically but to get that tone and then to think that um you know the never ending story didn't have a traditional score and more pop score and more you know eastern european score um then is that something that might have you know, turn the tide here. I, I'm told that it was because Tangerine Dream was suggested because of their popular... Oh, we forgot about Risky Business. Yeah, when I said Tom Cruise wasn't the name before, I forgot. I completely blanked on... Risky Business. That was the movie that put him on the map. It wasn't uh, wasn't Top Gun. Sorry, my bad. But yeah, the Tangerine Dream score to Risky Business was was very popular. Um, it was a cool score too. It was it was definitely much more um, in their comfort zone with with the kind of aspects of their style that really worked well, which was these kind of repeating figures that would then eventually unfold almost like minimalism but then they would add things over it and slightly modify it have rhythmically interesting things um ostinatos um that would it were almost hypnotic hypnotic is is a word i would use to describe a lot of tangerine dreams mostly seminal work is you've got this you're kind of entranced and the stuff that they were asked to do for legend was more thematic and that was never really their strong suit themes were never really their their thing they were sort of a quarterly based you know they do a lot of chordal work in their either their regular albums or even on other other um soundtracks all right with that let's uh let's listen to tangerine dreams version of unicorns from legend the american cut
And that'll do it for part one of this episode dedicated to the music of legend. Part two will be available shortly, where we dive into three more scenes and the use of music by Jerry Goldsmith and Tangerine Dream in the separate cuts of this film. Before we go, I want to thank David, Robert, and Jason for joining me on the program and to Randy Andrews for letting me sit in and host his show. Soundtrack Alley's theme music was composed by Alexander Shebel. That's it for today. And until next time, I'm Eric Woods saying so long, take care, and happy listening wherever you are in the world. Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.